Hi there. This is Washington Post reporter Lillian Cunningham. Stay tuned after the show to hear about my newest podcast, Moonrise. It's the dark but true story of why we went to the moon. Available now. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for the Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 23rd. Today, Britain's new prime minister. The secret documents at the center of the biggest civil trial in U.S. history. And the words we use when we talk about food. I mean, I I apologize for calling him Boris, but that's all anyone calls him here. Even in newspaper headlines, he's become kind of a Madonna or something figure. He's become a one-worder. In the Daily Telegraph, almost even the starched London Times, it's almost like Boris takes, you know, hustings. Boris goes to something, and that's... They just like using that word, Boris. So let me start by just having you say who you are and what you do. I'm William Booth. I'm the London bureau chief for The Washington Post. Briefly, tell me what just happened in the UK. What just happened in the UK? The Conservative Party, the Tories, had a election, really more of a selection. And the total number of votes given to each candidate was as follows. Jeremy Hunt, 46,656. And they chose, ta-da, Boris Boris Johnson, Johnson. 92,153. And therefore, I give notice that Boris Johnson is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. He's not only head of the Conservative Party, because the Conservative Party is in government and running the show, he will be prime minister starting tomorrow when the Queen has him kneel or curtsy or whatever the Queen does. Well, thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. Minutes after winning, Johnson gave a brief speech, and he he said something smart. He said that Brexit is an attempt to to kind of combine or to, to to twin two instincts, two feelings that the British have. Between the deep desire for friendship and free trade and mutual support in security and defense between Britain and our European partners, and the simultaneous desire, equally deep and heartfelt, for democratic self-government in this country. And that is the Brexit mess, the quagmire, and that's what Johnson acknowledged today. And he said a lot of people don't think this can be solved, but he said he thought he could solve it. So I first became familiar with Boris Johnson through Brexit, right? Like I kind of started hearing about him as the guy with the weird blonde hair who was sort of always complaining about Brexit and and the, and the need for the UK to leave. But I'm curious about what was his path to power before that? Like how did he become this incredibly prominent politician? Yes. Johnson w- w- was a, a scion of, of wealth and privilege. He went to Eton College, Oxford University. He glided into one, two, three top jobs in journalism. 
Then he ran for uh, as a lawmaker, a member of parliament, uh, for you know a little minor seat, and he won, and he hung in there. His big move out of out of journalism was to become mayor of London, and he won mayor of London not once but twice. And this is in the city that tilts very much labor, very much center left, very much left in some ways. And he became kind of well known outside of Britain during the 2012 Summer Olympics. It's going well, it's very, very well organized. What they do, get me a ladder. Where he was sort of the big back-slapping, glad-handing welcome mat. And then he was the Mr. Brexit, and the Brexit 2016 referendum won, flying under his banner. And he helped convince Brits that they wanted to make this leap of, of, of faith. And what has his reputation been as a politician, and why has he continued to grow in popularity? Well, I think his reputation as a politician is that he is a clever fellow. He's a jolly fellow. He is a, he is a person that makes the English feel better about being English. He is an optimistic chap. He's a little bit like Trump. He's not very PC. He says things that are, that are inappropriate. He speaks off the cuff. Um, some of it, like Donald Trump's, is a bit of a shtick, right? But he, he's popular where he's popular. On the other side of the fence, I mean, a lot of people think it's an act and think it's all a fabrication. That they think that the way that he presents himself in terms of being kind of bumbling and a little disheveled, um, that, that it's, it's crafted to be endearing. Well, it's, it's crafted to be you grant endearing. I mean, it's 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 a thing. I mean, uh, kind of the the mumbling, shumbling, ruffle your hair, not quite spitting the words out, looking bashfully away, uh, but being very erudite and clever. Um, you Grant did it very well, and, and Boris does it really well in politics. So in 2016, he was the face of the Leave campaign during Brexit. And I'm wondering, what has been his role in Brexit proceedings for the last few years as the UK has kind of struggled to figure out a path toward actually leaving? Well, what... Uh, Johnson has done since leading the Leave campaign um, has been not not really very impressive. Um, Prime Minister Theresa May appointed Johnson as Foreign Secretary. He was Foreign Secretary about two years. He didn't wasn't a very distinguished Foreign Secretary by anyone's estimation, except maybe his. Um, there wasn't a lot of a, a lot of achievement as a foreign secretary. And then when uh, Theresa May finally uh, uh, revealed this this Brexit deal that she'd spent two years hatching in Brussels uh, with their negotiators, um, he basically said he compared it in a private meeting to a, a pile of excrement that needed polishing. He and that he wasn't going to polish it, and he resigned the next day. So if he's become this person who just rails against Theresa May's plan for actually leaving the EU, but now he's going to be in a position of of power and of being responsible for coming up with a plan to leave the EU, what is he promising and how likely is he to execute that promise? So Johnson has promised that that do or die, come Halloween, 
Britain will leave the European Union. I say to all the doubters, dude, we are going to energise the country. We're going to get Brexit done on October the 31st. We're going to take advantage of all the opportunities that it will bring in a new spirit of can-do. And he says that he wants a deal, that he wants an orderly Brexit and a, a, a withdrawal agreement. But he said he's willing to leave with no deal. People have asked how he's going to get the Europeans to bend to his will. And he, he kind of puts, punches his fist in the air and says optimism and courage and can-do-ness. And um, we'll see how that does with Brussels. The Europeans are very skeptical of Boris Johnson. They don't necessarily like the guy very much. Um, and they, they don't believe he has a credible plan for wielding some kind of a compromise. They keep telling Mr. Johnson that they are not going to renegotiate Theresa May's deal and that they aren't going to revisit a, a lot of uh, points of the plan. But Boris says they will. So they say they won't, and Boris says they will, and they say they won't, and Boris says they will. So it seems like Boris Johnson has created this this reputation out of the fact that he's so adamant that 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 the UK needs to leave the EU, um, but that he doesn't actually seem like the person best equipped to make that happen if he doesn't have a detailed plan and that his whole strategy going into this is I'm just going to force the EU to agree to some kind of deal. Well, that's his like opening gambit that he's going to force them to make a better deal. But his plan B is just to leave without a deal. And, and unlike Theresa May and many other conservative party politicians and certainly people on the other side, he keeps saying that he's willing to take Britain out of the European Union with no deal to crash out. I mean, some people would say that's sort of the frat boys Brexit, right? That, that they're just going to knock the cups down and, and walk away from the table. But he's prepared to do that and he keeps saying that. Now, whether that's a bluff to scare the Europeans into, oh my God, we have to deal with this guy. We have to give him something more that he can pass from parliament. I mean, is to be seen. That's the next crucial kind of point in all this. If Britain goes out without a deal, most economists and the government's own reports say that Britain will be hurt substantially, economically, for two, three, five, six, seven years. And Boris and a lot of the Tories who just voted him in today say it's worth it. Bill, thank you so much. Anytime. William Booth is the London bureau chief for The Post. Last week, The Post published a massive database from the Drug Enforcement Administration. That database tracked every prescription opioid pill sold in the U.S. between 2006 and 2012, 76 billion pills in total. And since then, Post reporters have been working around the clock to make sense of it. My name is Aaron Davis. I'm a reporter here on the investigative staff at The Washington Post. I'm one of many reporters now looking at this case in Ohio. This case playing out in civil court in Cleveland involves nearly 2,000 cities, towns, counties, and native tribes from around the country. They're all suing dozens of drug companies, and they're accusing them of creating the opioid epidemic. Part of the evidence in this case was this database. 
The Washington Post and the newspaper in West Virginia both fought for the public release of this. They got it. And now we're, we're moving into the second phase where there's also all of these documents. Documents also filed last week in this court case. Aaron has been looking at what all this new information says about these drug companies. And one of the most surprising things that came out is that the pharmaceuticals responsible for the bulk of the drugs were actually generic drug companies. There were three names that came out of this database, SpecGX, Par Pharmaceutical, and Activist. And those three names, despite all the reporting that the Washington Post and other major outlets have done on this particular topic over the past few years, those three names had never appeared in the Washington Post before last week. And so we started digging into these three companies. Who are they and how did they get to this position? And we learned that Yes, Purdue Pharmaceutical, the big name that's been out there, the Sackler family that conceived of, designed, and got approval for OxyContin back in the 1990s, and that was the first big opioid drug that people kind of can think about and might have in their mind. But back around 2004, they lost their patent for exclusivity for this drug. And so then you had all these generic companies flooding into the market, and that's what is now SpecGX and PAR and Activist. These companies have changed a lot over the last few years, so don't get too hung up on those names. But generally, there is a world of very competitive generic companies trying to sell opioids across the country. So now there's been a new court filing that describes some of the internal communications inside some of these companies as they were putting these pain pills out into the world. What have we learned from what you've seen so far? We were starting to see internally the way that this was being thought of by the people selling them, the people pushing them from the companies, the major manufacturers, the distributors. There's one exchange that's kind of jumped out in that first filing, and this was by a national account salesman at Mellencrot, the biggest producer of opioid drugs for the last decade. And he writes to the vice president of a distributor, and they're going back and forth about this order of thousands of bottles of pills. And uh, the distributor, the vice president, writes, oh, they're flying off the shelf. It's like people are addicted to these things or something. Oh, wait, people are. They said that in writing? Writes that to the manufacturer. And the manufacturer replies, just like Doritos, keep eating, we'll make more. Oh, my gosh. I think people are going to think, did they really know? How much did they know about, you know, how deadly these were? And this is the time where, you know, the number of deaths is jumping from 12,000 to 18,000 to 20,000 people a year. We're now over 200,000 people who have overdosed, have been killed by opioids over the last decade. Well, but I think that is a central thing that a lot of people kind of struggle to understand when it comes to the opioid crisis. Because when I think about who is responsible here, who's culpable, I think about doctors who shouldn't be giving prescriptions to people who don't need prescriptions for painkillers. Or I think about pharmacies themselves who are handing out these drugs to people and should know that the amount that they're handing out is not what they should be handing out. It's way more. But when you think about the culpability of pharmaceutical companies, it's like, well, they're just making a drug. And, and they're not really responsible for who ends up with the drug. So how is it their fault? But I think that these communications show that they knew what they were doing. They knew who were going to be getting these drugs. And they knew that the fact that they were producing so many was helping create this massive supply of drugs ending up with people who don't need them, who are hurt by them. 
You're exactly right. And this whole system that the Drug Enforcement Agency has set up is a very self-policing type system. Everyone has a responsibility under DEA regulation and federal drug law to, quote, know your customers and to know what you're selling them. Know if you're selling them what seems like a reasonable amount. It seems if they suddenly order 10 times what they ordered the last time, that's not reasonable. There's something wrong there. If you're selling more drugs to a Walgreens pharmacy than you are to an entire hospital system somewhere, that's not reasonable. And it's your responsibility to report this. And there's a whole suspicious monitoring reporting system that manufacturers are supposed to report, distributors, and all the way down the line. And so here, you know, all the way... If you think the supply chain, this food chain, of this, you know, the, these drugs moving through this pipeline all the way to the pharmacy and to the you know person getting the prescription, along the way there's supposed to be lots of red flags and there are times when each of these characters, these actors, are responsible for reporting. And here you're, they're not really reporting; they're joking about how much of this potentially deadly drug is going out in the public. So now these companies and executives are part of a massive lawsuit. What are the allegations against them? Like, what are they believed to have done wrong? So, you know, over the years, there has not been a lot of major government prosecution of the drug business for this. And there are now some 2,000 lawsuits across the country that have been filed against the drug companies in different parts of the pharmaceutical industry. A lot of these have been rolled up into a few different big cases and mostly moving through Cleveland, Ohio. And there's kind of a huge test case of a couple counties in Ohio that's supposed to take place in the fall. And to give you a sense of how much is riding on this, I was looking for one of the attorneys in this case yesterday and I pulled up the docket and this, the file containing the names of the attorneys on this case is 850 pages long. There are that are many serious? attorneys involved for, on behalf of the you know many drug companies and all the way down. Wow. And so these cities and towns that are suing these drug companies, what are they seeking from this lawsuit? Well, they are seeking acknowledgement that, as they believe, these manufacturers and distributors and pharmacies and all the way down the line kind of colluded together, worked together. We're in a conspiracy to push out way too much of these opioid painkillers than what was ever could have been needed in some cases. You know, there's small towns that had 4,000 people and got 5 million doses of, of opioids over a couple of years, you know, hundreds of for each person in town. But to get at this, they've really, the plaintiffs have looked at this kind of like a organized crime type issue where they've tried to investigate who was communicating with who all the way down through the supply chain, these cities, these towns, these counties, the idea is that this will be a settlement. And perhaps if the weight of all the evidence goes toward the plaintiffs in this case, that there could be out of this, just this test case, a national settlement involving all these 2,000 counties that have now brought suit in some way against the manufacturers. And what do these companies that are being sued, what do they say about what their role was in this? Well, as you know, kind of what you said earlier that, okay, I can know my customers, I can know who I sold to, I can know the wholesaler, I can know the distributor. How am I, the, you know, the manufacturer, supposed to know if the pharmacy is doing their job, you know, three, four steps down the line? question is, did these companies do what they're supposed to do? Are there going to be internal communications that come to light or internal studies or, you know, what have you that show that they really didn't have a good internal monitoring process or reporting process? Or maybe they had, you know, juked those stats in a way so that they decided what was suspicious wasn't the same thing the DEA would consider suspicious. These are all questions that we're going to be looking for in the coming weeks. 
Aaron Davis is an investigative reporter for The Post. The Post has sought comment from the nation's top drug manufacturers and distributors, many of whom deny that they had any wrongdoing. Activist says, quote, Teva has not conspired, failed to report suspicious orders, or contributed to the use of opioids in the U.S. in any way. Endo Pharmaceutical says it is not their policy to comment on current litigation. And Malincrot said that their company, quote, for years has been at the forefront of preventing prescription drug diversion and abuse. You can find a link to their full responses at postreports.com. And now, one more thing. I always have my ear against the wall, so to speak, in terms of how people are talking about food. This is Ellie Krieger. She's a nutritionist and a guest columnist for The Post. So if I'm online at the grocery store, if I'm talking to friends, if I'm at a party, if I'm waiting for my coffee at Starbucks, I'm listening to how people are using language around food. And I hear so much of people speaking about food in terms of these extremes. I've been bad this weekend, or I'm eating clean, or I'm going to be good, or I'm not going to put that milk in my coffee because it has too much sugar. Constantly, words are coming up, ways of using language around food are coming up that essentially make me cringe. So Ellie reached out to other nutritionists, and she asked them to put together a list of phrases that they would like people to just stop using. One of the items on that list? Using the words good or bad to describe food. It's very important to pull back from thinking of foods like that, individual foods like that, and look at the bigger picture of how this culture of food is serving you and absolutely nourishing yourself with foods that have a lot of nutrients. But it's what you do usually that matters the most. And what you sprinkle in here and there for different reasons, maybe it's a celebration, maybe it's the opportunity to enjoy something that was just made by someone's grandma um, that you've never tasted before. That type of exploration is also part of a healthy life. Then there was the phrase clean eating. It kind of puts like a moral judgment on food. And so if we say, oh, I'm eating clean now, then are you muddying the waters by eating something that may be dirty eventually? I mean, it's just just not realistically how eating works. There was also the idea of guilty pleasures. I mean, it seems innocent enough to say, oh, I have a guilty pleasure. And I have to say that I'm often asked, oh, what's your guilty pleasure? And I don't think that there should be guilt when it comes to eating. Again, what you choose to eat is not a moral judgment. What you choose to eat does not make you a good person. It does not make you a bad person. And I think we really need to get this out of our language. This is why dietitians are seeing on a regular basis in their practices, people coming to them with feelings about guilt around food. And they're seeing that those kinds of feelings trigger negative behaviors. A lot of times if you feel guilty about something, you say, oh, what the heck? I'm a bad person now. I may as well just eat the entire pizza. And then you just feel worse and it spirals you down. And it really sets you up again for this roller coaster. Okay, now I'm being good. Now I'm being clean. And there's no need for any of that. Food is just food. And probably the most common problematic phrase that nutritionists hear is low carb or the idea of cutting carbs altogether. 
Now, I think when many people think about carbs, they're thinking about the carbs that many Americans overeat. Truly, many people would do well with reducing refined carbohydrate foods, such as white breads and crackers and chips and refined sugars. So yes, if we all kind of pull back on those foods without demonizing them, P.S., that is a good idea. But when dietitians have people saying, asking them in earnest, is it really okay if I eat an apple? Doesn't it have too much sugar? Then there's really a crisis. <laughs> so what's interesting about words and the way we phrase things, it might seem like no big deal, but first of all, it's a reflection of the way we're thinking so that it shows what we're thinking and, and the line of thought that we're, we're operating on. But it does something else that's very powerful. And when we use certain words on a regular basis, whether we're aware of it or not, it starts to shape the way we think. So it further kind of creates these grooves into our consciousness about how we're supposed to feel or what we feel about food and body image and our self-esteem around food. Ellie Krieger is a nutritionist and a guest columnist for The Post. She also hosts Ellie's Real Good Food on PBS. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Go to postreports.com to catch up on recent episodes and to sign up for our afternoon emails, which will give you a heads up when each day's show is posted. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The story you probably know about the moon landing starts with Sputnik and with a Cold War space race. Or it starts with President Kennedy's famous speech calling for us to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. That tale ends eight years later with an American flag waving on the lunar surface. But the real story is much deeper, wilder, and more revealing. Hi, this is Lillian Cunningham, host of The Washington Post's Presidential and Constitutional Podcasts. Come with me on my next podcast journey, Moonrise. Moonrise re-examines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, closed-door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, even the history of science fiction to tell a new story about space. It's a story that's darker, but also truer than the story you've probably heard before. And it has a lot to tell us about ourselves as Americans and as humans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise.